A search fund is an investment vehicle through which an entrepreneur raises funds from investors in order to acquire a company in which they wish to take an active, day-to-day leadership role. On this episode, we get to speak to someone who went through the entire process. I'm DJ Motri of the Black Equity Network, and welcome to the Black Equity Podcast. Welcome to another great episode of the Black Equity Podcast. As you've heard before, we're going to dive into this episode to learn more about search funds and this wonderful world of search funds and how maybe this could be an opportunity for those in our culture to learn and to uh, enter into this space. And so we have a founder who went through the search fund process and is here to talk to us today. Uh, Matthew Eskren. We're very excited to have you on the line. Matthew, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, the, first of all, thank you for having me, DJ. I will clarify one small thing, only only uh, in fairness. I'm the, the president of uh, Exxon Tea Bakeries. I'm, I'm not a uh, CEO or a founder, okay. but I, I, it's similar enough. Uh, but I, just for point of fact, I wanna, don't want to misrepresent it all. Um, you know, I, I've had a, a wonderful opportunity through the search fund world uh, to to wind up as the president of a company uh, in a field that I've got experience in. For, for those that are at all familiar with that field, it's actually very, very strange and rare for somebody to end up in the, in the space that their experience comes from. Uh, a lot of that was intentional on my part, but, but it, it, it is rare because normally uh, it's asking too much to be able to connect the dots between a business, uh, a group of investors, and your expertise. But but I've been wildly fortunate in that regard. It, also wildly fortunate that uh, that you and I linked up uh, after you you got the search funder and and uh, look forward to having a great discussion today. Definitely, definitely. So let's start at the beginning. I always want to get to the root of everything. So at the root of this. 
Where does your story begin when it comes to entrepreneurship? When did you know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? When did that begin for you? Well, I've had I've had the idea most of my life, um, but I never understood a real pathway to get there. When I was in the Marine Corps, uh, I was I was very very uh, I'll just say hell bent on on franchising. Um, I, I made it all the way to the last step in the process to to franchise a Seven Eleven store. At the time, uh, the loan market was terrible, and it was going to require me to work for free for uh, at least one year, maybe two. And that was enough for my wife and I to say, "Okay, well, maybe franchising isn't the way for us." But even with that, I never gave up on on the idea of of entrepreneurship. And then, uh, probably about five years ago, I I learned about uh, a search fund. Uh, and, and at the time, I had heard words like private equity, uh, but I never had heard of a search fund, and it almost sounded too good to be true, which is one of the reasons why I champion it so hard and so loudly to whoever will listen, because it is an opportunity for people of, of, of many backgrounds to be able to put their toe in the water and, and get recognized by investors, by business owners, and to get a slice of that pie yourself, because the way that a search fund works, I'm sure we'll get into this, but it, it always ends with the the person having equity, which is this hidden gem in life that, that so many of us never understand how to get, but, but intrinsically know that we need. So, okay, there's a couple things there. Um, you mentioned one of my favorite words, equity. And so for you, when you are saying equity, what are you referring to? Uh, when you're using that term uh, equity referring to having a percentage or a point total into a business uh, because most businesses uh, the intent of, of buying them acquiring them or even founding them is to one day be able to sell them uh, right. there is there is a, a portion of society that's not interested in that but overwhelmingly 80 90 percent of businesses their or part a part of their origin is to be able to to sell it at some point. And so when you have equity, now you have an opportunity to receive benefits from the sale of that company. Is is that correct? I mean significant ones. So if you if you take a company that is you know is uh, performing at five million dollars in revenue and performing at one million dollars in EBITDA, um, you know, and, and you're able to then sell that for $2 million. If you've got 20, 30% equity, uh, you know, even, even if you're not as fortunate to have that much, if you have five or 10% equity, I mean, you can do the math, you know, five or 10% or 20 or 30% uh, of uh, $2 million is fantastic, especially if you've been earning a salary and gaining experience the whole way. So we've defined equity, but let's kind of dive into the actual pathway of going towards this equity that you're referring to. When you found out about Search Funder, where were you? How did this impact you? How did what were the origins of you finding out about uh, Search Funder? So, before I ever knew about the website, and I believe before the website ever actually came to be, a friend of mine uh, named Brian Vanderheiden, very successful guy, uh, uh, was doing his MBA at Booth in University of Chicago. And he 
was talking about this concept of a search fund. And I'm not going to lie to you, DJ, it just sounded too good to be true. Uh, You know, basically a traditional search fund, which is what he was doing. uh, It's not what I did, but it's what he was doing. uh, Involves uh, a searcher finding a group of investors uh, who will pay them a, in my opinion, a very fair salary uh, usually it's for two years, and all they do for those two years is search for businesses. And then that group of investors that Im- invested them to go and in- search gets right of first refusal on a business that they find, meeting a very strict criteria. And then uh, assuming they're able to get that venture funded to acquire that business, uh, they they then become the uh, CEO or the president or COO, depending on how they have uh navigated their search and in, in, in their uh, uh, contracts. But so it, 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 oftentimes it's people that are in their mid to late 20s or even early 30s who are springboarding right from their MBA into a uh, well-paying executive role in a company that they have equity behind. So you've never heard about this concept before. You were kind of leery about it. What made you say, well, let me go down this path. Let me see exactly what this path entails and see if it's something that's right for me. Well, I went down it because I saw him do it. I, he, he did a two-year search, was able to execute that search and purchase Richmond Alarm Company. He's still, to this day, the CEO of it. Um, and so I saw, hey, his checks weren't bouncing. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it sounds overly simple, right? But right. Right. He was getting the money that he had negotiated, uh, which again, you know, if you do any any uh, research into it, you'll you can find round about what those numbers are. Um, you know, I won't I won't divulge his details, but uh, his checks weren't bouncing. They were, in my opinion, very fair. And uh, I saw him make the acquisition, and and there he was as a CEO. And I said, I got to learn more about this. When I first heard about it, even if I had wanted to, I didn't have the skill set necessary or, or the credibility necessary to do a, a search fund. You know, a lot of people don't realize it, but the, to be a traditional search fund person, you need a very specific path to be considered what, what they call blue chip, which is either to have a blue chip education. Typically, that means Ivy League or top 30 um, undergrad or, or MBA or both. Um Or that can be offset by having uh, a blue chip work history, which most most of us in our, um, you know, in our when we find out about this in our twenties, it's impossible to have that blue chip work history unless you you were able to get with a Fortune 100 company right out of the gate and kind of navigate some things. So I I delved deeper after I saw what had happened to him. I didn't believe that there wasn't an alternative path. My my thought was, okay, I don't have that background that you're talking about, but I'll bang on enough doors where it won't matter. And the truth is that wasn't right. I was wrong, but I did find a way by acquiring a partner who, who did have some blue chip work history, who had spent 30 years in our industry as a vice president of, of semi big companies. Uh, and as a partner, we started to get people to answer the calls. Um, and that made a big difference. We were never going to be able to do a traditional search fund, but we were going to be able to do a self-funded search fund. And I, I think that for your audience, I think it's very important to understand that a self-funded search fund requires a lot less of the um, traditional path and a lot more about your drive and your ability to find a deal and bring it to the table. 
because the truth of the matter is when you get in front of a lot of these investors, as long as you are a high energy individual with a, a decent background and you've got a good deal in front of you, they're anxious to work with you. Now, the key there is having a good deal in front of you. That's gigantic because uh, in the self-funded world, it's all about what's the deal. In the traditional search fund world, it's much more about, you, you know, do you have the potential to find a good deal? Uh, so people are making a much larger risk, upfront risk on you uh, if you're doing a traditional search fund. And I think that even traditional search funds, they're growing uh, because people in those worlds, people that are, are going through those Ivy League educations, people that are going through those peripheral Ivy League, you know, Midwest Ivy, uh, you know, Southern Ivy, you know, we, we all kind of know the names of the schools. Um, they're hearing about this and they want to do it because they could take the traditional uh, uh, C-suite route and they might get there by 40 or they could do this and they could get to the C-suite with equity at 30. Something that you just said stuck out to me. You said that you're going down this pathway and you didn't necessarily have the type of background that most people who go down this pathway have, but you found a strategic partner to kind of offset the fact that you didn't have that traditional background. Am I hearing that, that correctly? Absolutely. And that just comes down to being resilient enough to not say take no for an answer. Uh, sometimes you can't open the door with a key or because it's unlocked. Sometimes you've got to blow it off the hinges. That's the Marine in me talking. Um, so, you know, again, once I started having this vice president on these calls with me or, or I could introduce them via email, all of a sudden I started getting some return calls and some return emails. Once we had a good deal to show people, then I had people actually competing uh, to, you know, for, for our time and interest because the deal was good. Uh, now, that is only half the story because ultimately, if you are not able to, to execute and finish that deal, now what do you do? And that was actually ultimately what we found ourselves in because we were not able to pull the trigger on, on that deal. And it came down to how well could you network, how much of an impression had you left on your investors, uh, so on and so forth. But you definitely need to align yourself with strategic partners. You definitely need to have phenomenal relationships with anybody that, that you're involved with. And, and you have to understand that if people know you and trust you, then if this deal doesn't work out, they may deal source something may be able to bring you into the fold. And that was the, the good fortune that I had. So you go through this process. And you'll notice so you I didn't say luck. Oh, go ahead. I didn't say luck because, because while I am extremely fortunate and while I had extremely good fortune, a lot of those moves led me to having that good fortune. That's interesting. So even though this particular acquisition didn't come about, the relationships you made, the connections you made, and the integrity and the character that you shown, that helped when something new came about to make sure that they were going to contact you. That's 100% true. So you go along this path, you meet these strategic partners. Did it end up being this company that you acquired or did you end up acquiring a different company? We ended up acquiring a different company. Um, after uh, our deal fell through due to some due diligence issues um, uh, that I'm not privy to, to go into, um, you know, we all basically said, hey, we, we still want to do business together, but, you know, it's going to have to kind of take a little bit longer because this play isn't working out. Uh, so I continued to build my professional background, continued to build 
my my uh, level of preparedness. All the while, I kept those relationships with the investors. And uh, at one point, the investors reached back out to me and said, hey, we're thinking of funding this venture. We found this phenomenal idea with a really strong uh, uh, inventor, uh, founder, and we want to fund it. Can you advise us on what your experiences with this? And then if it, all the things line up down the road, this will be your operation to run. And I said, absolutely. And, and you know, it was not a short process. Um, that phone call probably happened in January or February of 2019. And my first day wasn't until November 18th. So, you know, even at that point, a lot of this stuff tends to go a little bit slower. And the reason for that is when you're dealing with a private equity group or a family office or a holding company or any entity like that, you have to understand that, that we're talking about ideas. These numbers to them are actually coming out of one of their bank accounts. Right. So right. they're going to move at a much more deliberate, much slower pace. In fact, sometimes they are, are happy to miss out on a good opportunity that, uh, that they were not able to, to do full due diligence on rather than skipping steps. And I think that as, as a, uh, a search funder or as anybody who's, who's trying to operate, I think we don't always understand um, that that doesn't mean that they don't really like the idea or want to do the deal. It just means that, that in their world, they've already got a large chunk of money. They're not gonna pull the trigger on anything prematurely because they got that money for a reason. Uh, they, they didn't get that money by being rash or hasty. What I'm really gathering from this journey is, and you may not see this, but there was there was a big chunk of time where you could have gave up. You could have said, look, you know, this is taking too long. I need to focus on something else. I'm not even going to give this any attention. And that opportunity could have slipped by. Where does that mindset come from where you don't necessarily give up, but you use that waiting time to get better, to add more skill sets to your arsenal? Where does that mindset come from? There's a few things there, and I appreciate you pointing that out because it's not maybe something that I had, had thought of it that way. Um, some of it comes from my, my Marine time. I mean, you know, Marines, we, we have a, a good or a bad habit of, of being stubborn, too stubborn to fail. Um you know, also some of it comes from upbringing. You know, I, I have uh, a strong father and mother that worked like, you know, we, a lot of us have the same story, right? We watched our parents work their fingers to the bone figuratively um, and call and scratch. And, and so I, that level of not giving up comes from them. You know, some of it also comes from myself. I've, I've got a family, you know, they, 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 they are not allowed or I am not allowed to fail them at that level. So you're right. There were plenty of opportunities where I could have given up on that dream. Um, and, and to be honest, I had a very good job with a, you know, the largest pork producer in, in the world. I mean, it wasn't like I was in a bad situation, but I've always wanted more. And so seeing, seeing those examples as a youth growing up into that environment as a Marine, and then also having to look my, my wife and children in the eyes, uh, every day, all kind of facilitated me to to have that that level of persistence and that unwillingness to relent so you get this call they're interested in you advising 
What is going through your mind at this point? What are you saying to yourself after you receive this call? They want you to advise. They want you to keep going down this pathway with them. What is going through your mind and what are you saying to yourself? Well, the, the first thing I'm saying to myself is, what do I tell my wife? Uh, because she's been on a little bit of a roller coaster. In uh, mm-hmm. my experience, and I mean this in the most positive way, but for those of us that are entrepreneurial and for those of us that are enterprising and that even if you never are entrepreneurial, but you have a strong professional background, our spouses enable us to be able to do a lot of that because if they want to do, they can make it a lot more difficult. Right. And, right. and so I wanted to be able to share that with my wife because it was exciting and because it possibly impacted all of us. However, having been all the way down the road before, I know that it could end up with just chalking up the good experience. And I didn't want to put her through a big roller coaster. Uh, so that was the first thought is how do I explain this to my wife? The second thought is that, you know, I need to, to take a measured approach. I need to advise as best as possible, but I also can't let it interfere with what I do you know, uh, for my primary career, uh, because, because opportunities in the future are phenomenal, but, but I was very fortunate. I had a, a strong career going with a good company and I couldn't let the two worlds collide. Uh, so those are the first two things that I thought. So once you decide to advise for this company, uh, what is the process like going through that pro- process with them, um, and eventually acquiring the company? Well, it was exciting because, um, uh, it really is a great product, and the people involved are excellent to deal with. The on the investor side, again, I had already known them, and that was great. On the uh, inventor side, um, you know, the the gentleman that invented the product is still involved today. He and I have a fantastic relationship. He, you know, has he invented the probably the biggest pepperoni roll line in the state of West Virginia prior to this, which in the state of West Virginia, that's a huge thing. Um, and then he, he had taken kind of this family recipe and brought it to market today. And so that has been a, an awesome uh, uh, overall situation. It was awesome before I was full-time. It's been awesome since I've been full-time. And I, I can't tell you how happy and excited I am to be a, a part of this venture. And, you know, the, the venture was funded in the summertime. And then I, I didn't come along until, uh, until November. That decision was primarily made just because in any business – Anytime that you're going to attach, um, you know, labor to something, there's always a monetary cost. So it's just finding the right time to, to kind of do it. But we found that time. It was November. Uh, and now here we are. It's already March. I, I can't believe that, that we're going on five months as the, the president of this company. But it, it's a it's been fantastic. We've got a, a lot of reception from both retailers, people, everything in between. It, it couldn't be happier. So there's a couple of questions that sparked my mind here. First, I want to know more about the company. And then second, for those who have never been uh, president of a, a company, because I can sense that someone's listening to this and uh, they may aspire uh, one day to be in higher positions within a company. What is the daily responsibilities of a president? What exactly uh, is the difference between uh, that C-suite and uh, those who not who are, who are not in that that position? Well, every decision that's made, especially in a, a st- in our case, we're a startup. Every decision that's made needs to be done part and parcel with a financial analysis. And that sounds obvious, but you know, working in, in for bigger companies. Um, that maybe 
you always had to have an idea of what the finances were, but you maybe didn't have to do a model for it. Uh, and, and what that has done for me is it's forced me to, to adjust my thinking a little bit in a good way. It, you know, it, it's forced me to a lot of times have to justify my own ideas before I even get to the point of, of, of bringing them forward. Um, so that level of analysis is maybe a little bit new. Um, you know, there's always going to be things that you think about at, in, at the C-suite level that you never would have thought about before, like insurance. Um, you know, what insurance provider? How do we go about making this happen? Because that's a, a component that you just don't think about. Um, I've, for years, had a phone provided for me. Never before did I have to go out and scout which phone plan and which phone was the right decision for me to make. And that sounds right. a little bit laborious and that sounds a little bit mundane, but but those are legitimately the, the types of, of decisions that I was making at the start that I didn't ever even think of. Well, now you're at a higher level. So some of the things that uh, someone else was doing the thinking for you, now you're in that position to do that thinking and provide that for those who are p- performing that task. Absolutely, and, and it gives you a larger appreciation uh, for the people that are making those calls um, at the previous places that, that, that I worked. So, so tell me more about the company. I know you've been operating now for five or six months at the time of this interview and this conversation. Um, tell me more about the company. What industry are you in? What type of products are you providing to the world? Well, we provide baked goods. Uh, the name of the company is XLNT Bakeries. The product line is Lucy's Whoopie Pies, and it's similar to a Whoopie Pie, but comparing it to a Whoopie Pie is like comparing a Corolla to a Camry, or a Corolla to a Cadillac, I really should okay. say. Uh, okay. You know, I would drive either one of them, but, but it's obvious that one is nicer than the other. Um, right. You know, a traditional Whoopie Pie is, is, is two cakes, oftentimes not very moist, uh, and a marshmallow or uh, a frosting-type filling. We have two moist cakes that are just delicious, and then we fill it with a buttercream dairy-based filling, which almost mm-hmm. tastes like saucer. Uh, and I know you've had the product, so you know you can attest it, it doesn't taste like anything that most of us have ever had. Before. Oh no, this is different. No, this is definitely different. Um, this is a whole different type of baked good. I know we sat down, we had a conversation. You let me test the product. I've never had anything like this before. And that's what the main response we get from people. Um, and so you can find it at office canteens or micro markets. So if, if the place that you work happens to do refrigerated vending, you can find us there. You can find us in uh, convenience stores or, as we call them, in the industry, C stores. Uh, we're knocking on the door at, at some grocery outlets. Uh, so we would love to be in the grocery channel. And, you know, it's, it's served out of the cooler, which, again, is, it makes us different because your traditional whoopie pie is is uh, in the, on the counter or next to the muffins, uh, you know the the uh, packaged muffins, I should say. Uh, whereas for us, we're oftentimes in the open air cooler next to the sandwiches, or we could be in the the cooler by the the dairy bar, uh, or vice versa. Uh, and it really puts us in a, a good spot because when people see our product, they don't see it next to the um, the whoopie pie that is significantly less in quality. So what are your main points of contact for the product? Right. So the main point of contact would be either myself or the website, XLNTBakeries.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. 
Matthew Askren, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-A-S-K-R-E-N. Uh, the other opportunity is if you've got a, uh, a distributor or a retailer and let them know. Uh, we're currently in a few different distributors. We're in a distributor called SLED. We're in HT Hackney. Um, we've been approved by Vistar, um, which is a big, which is big in the micro market world. We've been approved by Vendor Supply. So if you've got a, a canteen, a Compass canteen in your office, you can probably get our product. Uh, if you go into a convenience store, um, you know, oftentimes retailers have to go through the distributors. It's kind of just how the chain works. Um, but, but we're cracking a lot of those uh, down. We'll be in Decormark very shortly. We've been approved by them. Decormark is probably the biggest convenience store uh, distributor. Uh, so a lot of folks here in the near term are going to be having an opportunity to see our product for the first time. We're available in eight states right now in one form or fashion. We would really, really love to grow that number. You know, a state that we're not in today, but we've got just a plethora of interest in various outlets for is Texas. Okay. Um, okay. You know, so we we are, are supposed to be starting with a distributor uh, in April that is based out of Louisiana. So once that gets handled, they cover six states. Most of the states uh, are around Louisiana. Um, we're not in, I think, any of those or, or almost none of them. So that number where we're currently in eight states is going to elevate to, uh, uh, you know, probably be in the 12 to 14 range soon. So here's what I'm hearing when I'm hearing distribution. I'm thinking about the manufacturing side because both have to be perfectly aligned. You know, you want to be able to meet supply and demand. So as you increase your distribution, now you have to increase production. Um, is that safe to say? That's a great point. You know, if you don't have good production, whether you're doing it yourself or you've got somebody else doing it um, under your guidance, you know, you're, you're in trouble. You've got to have reliable production. You've got to have reliable uh, supply chains so that you can have ingredients. You've got to have reliable distri distribution. You've got to be able to get it, your product to people when they place an order. You know, and that's a maybe a part of things that people don't think about, especially as an old production guy. Um, we don't always think about what happens to it after we put it into a package and seal it up. Uh, but it has to be distributed well. It then has to be merchandised well. You've got to have a good enough relationship with the retailer or the distributor for them to allow you to merchandise it well. You then have to get data, whether it be a movement report or a velocity report, after the fact so that you can make wise decisions with how the product is being merchandised or used. So, yeah, there, there's... It, it, there's significant points in the process um, that unless you really have the whole picture, you just don't think about. That's awesome. A lot of people want to own businesses, but they don't necessarily have the skill set or the know-how of how to operate a business day to day. So what gave you this ability to be able to run a business uh, on a day to day basis? What types of things prepared you? I was very fortunate. Once I got into the food manufacturing world, um, I, I was moved around a lot in a good way. So I started out running a sanitation department. There's not a lot of guys who who go from running sanitation departments to running companies. Right. Um, right. And I recognize that. So even though it was a great experience, I was given an opportunity to run a QA department. I jumped at it. To be honest, though, there's not a lot of guys that are running QA company or departments that go to running their own companies. So at some point, I recognized I needed to get into operations and production. I did that. Um, 
I also had an opportunity to, to go to a company and to be able to basically handle everything outside of production and engineering. So that was all of the supply chain. That was all of the logistics. Uh, that was the, the food safety and the quality. I, I had kind of all of that under my umbrella. Fantastic experience. I then went to a, you know, the biggest pork producer in the world and eventually was a, a plant manager uh, where in a lot of ways you're, you're, run, you're running your own business unit. Um, and so all of those things combined gave me a lot of good experience. The, the fact that I mixed small companies and big companies helped me out as well because in big companies there's so many processes and systems already in place and so many resources that are available to you that you, it still takes skills to execute, but, um, but there's always somebody to turn to. Having done similar things at smaller companies, a lot of times uh, your lane is much wider and you have to be the one that figures out some of that stuff. So inter intertwining those various experiences set me up well. Um, the search fund process set me up well, even though it didn't work out the way that I anticipated it would, because that really got me focused on financial modeling mm -hmm. and on pitching people. And I had never done that before. And when you have your own business, you are your, your company's biggest pitch man. Um, when you have, uh, you know, a startup, you're, you're doing financial modeling or financial analysis on everything. Now, earlier in the conversation, you were telling us that you didn't necessarily have the traditional model, the traditional background. The traditional background includes Ivy League, uh, blue chip schools or blue chip uh, corporations that they work for. So what exactly is the background that you had that helped prepare you uh, for this world? Well, I, I spent seven years in the United States Marine Corps. Very proud of my time. Uh, bronze star medalist, uh, you know, at, at a, a very young age, um, was able to have a lot of responsibility in a lot of different ways. I was an instructor for two years, so training uh, entry-level Marines, that also was a fantastic experience and, and set me up for success in a lot of different ways. Um, I then went into the work world uh, and realized before long that, hey, my ceiling is larger than I would have thought without an education, I'm just limiting myself. So I ended up uh, deciding to go back to school while I was uh, working and uh, ended up you, you know, doing the distance program at Hampton University, which is something I'm very proud of. Uh, and you know, I know you got some pirates listening to this. So uh, yeah, I did my undergrad through Hampton and you know, I, I'm very proud of that and it was a great experience. I actually met a mentor through that process, a guy by the name of John Burnett. He, uh, he's oftentimes on Fox Business Network and uh, one of the smartest people I know. Uh, so that, that program was just fantastic and have nothing but good things to say about it. I also uh, went right from that into my MBA. Uh, which I did at Jackson State University. Uh, and that was interesting because I was trying to find a program. I was trying to find one that fit my life, which meant I was looking for uh, a distance program. I was looking for something that could be done, uh, even if it would be a lot of work, it could be done sooner than later. Um, and so I had a list of probably three schools, uh, I believe Louisiana Tech uh, out of uh, Louisiana, um, obviously, uh, Lamar out of Beaumont, Texas, and Jackson State were the three top ones. And, and I ended up having a conversation with the uh, gentleman that ran the MBA program there, a gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Randy Russ. And prior to, to getting into academia, he had been the CEO at uh, Community Coffee, which is a, 
obviously a manufacturing outfit and you know their coffee is everywhere uh and so i i saw that and i thought well here's another opportunity for mentorship from somebody who's been where i want to go no offense to, to other academics but you know i don't have aspirations of one day being uh, a department chair at a university i did have uh aspirations of being uh, in the c-suite of a, a food manufacturing company so that appealed to me very strongly so that worked out perfectly i'm also a product of of HBCUs and the HBCU world. I know right now we're in the middle of this political climate and everybody's talking about different ways to uh, give to HBCUs. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, you know, again, I go back to John Burnett. Uh, John Burnett has covered this extensively, whether it would be through social media or, or on TV. Um, you know, HBCUs are being well taken care of at the moment, and that's got to continue Um you know the the benefit uh, to doing that is is just gigantic, and you know as HBCUs are are changing in the modern era, there there are people involved with them that maybe aren't who you think of uh, in years past. I happen to fit that mold, uh, but you know I couldn't be happier and prouder of of uh, the schools that I've been a part of and graduated from, and you know I, I hope that I'm out here making them proud as well. Well, you mentioned not necessarily fitting the mold of an HBCU. You're, you're not uh, a black man. Uh, for those who have seen the cover of this uh, podcast, but how were you treated uh, at these HBCUs? Uh, what was your experience like? I, I was treated well. I mean, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, the classmates that I had, again, I did at distance. So a lot of our interactions were weren't you know in the classroom per se um however you know everybody involved has pictures up and things like that so we know who we are i was treated a-okay i got nothing but love for for everybody involved well i'm glad you didn't necessarily have that uh traditional route and i'm glad that you actually did go to hbcus because it proves that you can go down this path and be from most different backgrounds that are out there people that are listening to the show and you can find your own path and your own way of reaching uh, your version of success. Thank you very much. I do appreciate that. And yet you're right. You bring up a great point in terms of the, the I call it asymmetrical path, uh, but the non-traditional path, um, which is that if, if there is a will, there's a way, um, you know, I, I recognized when I was hearing about search funds at that time, I hadn't even started my undergrad. Um, and I recognized that, that I could do it in a non-traditional way. However, um, there's still certain things that were necessary. So I still had to do things. I still had to go to a reputable school for my undergrad. I still had to go to a reputable school for my MBA. Those things did help me break some credibility gaps. Um, there was things from a professional standpoint that I could, I could grow on and expand on at the same time that I was, uh, working on these deals that would assist me. Um, I could network. Networking is, is just a gigantic part of, of all this. And that's where websites like searchfunder.com come in and, and are, are very beneficial. But that's also where things like my relationship with John Burnett come in. You know, John was a professor of mine, uh, to be honest, the best professor I had. Um, and, you know, he was very available to us. Mm -hmm. I took mm -hmm. advantage of that. And again, now, years later, I still take advantage of that because he's just too smart and, and too well-rounded not to, to utilize him as a mentor still. 
And there's other students that, that have probably had that opportunity, I would assume, and maybe haven't taken full advantage of that. And, and that ends up being their loss. And it doesn't have to even be John. I had plenty of good professors, and then plenty of them would probably be willing to, to fit that mold. Um, but, you know, when, when you turn on Fox Business and you see your professor uh, carrying himself well and, and stating the facts and, and the numbers, uh, it makes you pay a little bit more attention to what his next assignment is. I think throughout your journey, what I'm hearing is having those relationships, having those connections on each stop of your journey has allowed you to propel yourself, have the necessary skill sets, have the necessary strategic partnerships and have the necessary connections to get to where you are today. You absolutely are. And I didn't come into this with a whole lot of those connections, you know, by and large, uh, other than, than the one friend that I have, um, you know, I didn't, and, and for the record, the investors that he had and the investors that I have or are, are, have dealt with are, are totally separate. So it wasn't even, you know, because because he hit search fund background and I had the, what I, again, what I call the, the non-traditional or asymmetrical. Um, so, you know, you've got to make those connections. You have to put yourself out there. You've got to be willing to meet with these people. You've then got to be willing to do the things that are necessary to show yourself as being uh, a worthy candidate for them to put their money behind. Uh, and again, the biggest things that I can tell anybody is you're dealing with investors is you've got to, to put yourself off as being high energy, being somebody that's willing to learn because presumably these investors have made their money, right? So they know what they're talking about. And the third part is you've got to put yourself uh, into a category as being smart and dedicated. And you know if you can do that, then there is a way. Your way may be slightly different than mine, but there's going to be some overarching similarities involved. I thank you so much, Matthew, for coming on the Black Equity Podcast. How can entrepreneurs and investors who are listening to this episode, how can they reach out to you and potentially work with you long term? Well, they can find me on LinkedIn, Matthew Askren, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-A-S-K-R-E-N. Uh, they can go to excellentbakeries.com. Um, you know, Excellent Tea Bakeries also has a, uh, Instagram account, which is Lucy's Hoopy Pies. Um, so there, there's many ways, but I welcome uh, folks reaching out and let's let's build relationships and help each other get towards that goal line because there really is enough room for all of us to succeed. Thank you so much. What are your final thoughts for those who are entering entrepreneurship uh, for the first time? What are your final thoughts that you could uh, provide to them? Well, a friend of mine named Ray Robertson told me in front of uh, New Life Christian Fellowship Church in Chicago Heights, Illinois, five or six years ago, that you needed three things to be successful. And so I would like to leave everybody with Ray Robertson's uh, advice. Ray's a, a really smart guy uh, with an MBA. He works for Borg Warner in Mississippi now. But Ray said you need three things. He said you need to have a uh, real tangible goal. You then need to have a plan uh that has mile markers or, or opportunities to, to hit uh, along the way to get you to that plan. And then the third thing that you need is a strong enough network so that you can be aware of the opportunities that are out there. And uh, he said it in a much more eloquent and in, uh, uh, smart way than I just broke it down. But ultimately, he gave me that advice five or six years ago, and, and I have not stopped uh, using it. And I would pass that along to any and all that are listening to this it's not enough to say that you want to be an entrepreneur you need to then 
say what you're going to be an entrepreneur doing, whether that's the search fund world or whether that's a franchise or whatever else. You then need to have an understanding for what the steps are to get you there. You need to reverse engineer it back to where you're at now. And then you need to surround yourself with smart enough people and people that know what's going on in the world so that when you do have opportunities or when there are opportunities out there that you might be a fit for, that you can jump in and, and have a fighting chance. The other thing is, the worst thing anybody can tell you is no. And if you're like most of us, you've been told no a lot. It doesn't stop you. Um, so put yourself out there. You know, Take calls. Uh, take opportunities to have face-to-face -face meetings. Buy somebody a coffee so that you can uh, pick their brain so on and so forth. Uh, but, but those are all kind of essentials to making this entrepreneurship thing work. Thank you so much, Matthew, for coming on the Black Equity Podcast. I know that this conversation is going to bless many entrepreneurs and investors who will hear your journey and be able to grab the wisdom from it. So thank you for coming on the Black Equity Podcast. You have an open door to come back anytime uh, for us to sit down and have a conversation. So uh, thank you for doing this. Thank you, DJ. We are truly grateful for today's guest. If you are interested in becoming an approved Black Equity Strategic Partner with this company or one in the past, simply send us an interest inquiry to the following email, djm at djmotri.com. Once again, djm at djmotri.com. Let us know your name, your company, your services, and which guest you are interested in partnering with. As an approved partner, you will have exclusive access to our network and have first opportunity at future partnerships as well. Thank you for tuning in and be sure to join us on the next episode of the Black Equity Podcast.